Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first official episode of Possible or Reasonable. Um, I know it says season one, episode two, but last week's episode was just the introduction to this podcast. So this is actually the first official episode, and you know I'm very excited to um, to get to do this. And so I'm Jesse Fernandez, and today um, I'm going to be sharing with you guys on. The rules of evidence, and you know, when we look at evidence, and we're and when we're you know analyzing evidence, we want to make sure that we keep these things in mind, and that we know these things when you know examining evidence. And so, I that's just the purpose of this podcast is just to really look at these rules, and to as we look at you know um, these the data points and and the information that we can actually use uh, these rules and these um, guidelines to help us come to the most reasonable conclusion and and that's the goal you know that's the goal is to come to the most reasonable inference from the evidence um, from the data points and so without further ado let's get right into the video so the first rule first um, rules for evidence is there's there's two categories of evidence there's two forms of evidence there's direct evidence and then there's indirect evidence there's only one thing that falls into the category of direct evidence, and that is eyewitness testimony. Now, I'm gonna give you uh, give you guys an example of what um, this looks like, and then I'm gonna share an example of what indirect evidence looks like. So, an example of direct evidence would be, you know, it's raining outside, it's a rainy day, and someone comes in and they come into the house and they tell the people inside the house saying, "Hey, look, it's raining outside. You know, I got drenched with water. Um, it's pouring hard. So, if you guys want to go outside." You better make sure you put on, a, you know, your your raincoat and your rain boots, or make sure you take an umbrella because it's pouring, right? That's an example of direct evidence because we actually have witnessed a person who was there, who was actually in the event, and now that person is sharing this event with others. That is an example of direct evidence. The person was really there to see what they said they saw. The things that fall into the category of indirect evidence would be all the other stuff. So what do I mean by that? Well, DNA, that's indirect evidence. Uh, fingerprints, that is also indirect evidence. Um, what about what a person said? Uh, that's indirect evidence. Okay, uh, how about how they said it? You know, the tone of voice they used, uh, indirect evidence. What they could have said, but, but they didn't say, you know, um, indirect evidence. All this falls into the category of indirect evidence. The only thing that falls into the category of direct evidence is eyewitness testimony. And an example of, of indirect evidence would be, you know, I'm going to use the same um, setting. You know, it's a raining day, right? And let's say a person comes into the house. And this time, instead of telling the people that it's raining outside, which would be an example of direct evidence, this person just walks into the house drenched with, with, with water and, you know, having a raincoat on and rain boots and umbrella. And instead of telling the people, they, that person just goes into like the corner and just tries to, to get dry and tries to squeeze all the water from their clothes and tries to take the water from their umbrella out, you know, trying to do all this stuff. But, they, but that person doesn't tell nobody in the house that it's raining outside. Now, everybody in the house, you know, when they see that person come in, they can see, okay, this person's, you know, got a raincoat on. Okay, this person's got an umbrella. This person's got some rain boots on, right? I don't know if I said that twice, I'm sorry. Um, but basically, they have a lot of, they have pieces, articles of clothing that demonstrates that either it's cold, 
but more reasonably that it's raining outside because this is the only type of clothing that you would wear um, if it's raining outside. And so the most reasonable explanation from those little pieces of indirect evidence, those little pieces of clothing, right? All those little pieces of information are, are, are um, examples of indirect evidence. All those point to the most reasonable explanation in that it's raining outside. Now, it's very important to know this because when, 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 um, when looking at direct evidence and looking at indirect evidence, some people might say, well, oh, you know, direct evidence is really good because you have a person who is actually there, a witness, you know, that can testify that this actually happened and that's very strong. And if you have a, you know, a night witness, man, you're going to have a strong case. Right. And there's other people who say, you know, yeah. And, and if you have an indirect um, case, an indirect evidence case, that's not as strong because, you know, you don't really have someone who is there to verify if this was true. All you have to do is make a, a, a conclusion solely based on these little pieces of information. And what if that's not true? And so sometimes people will rate one category of evidence um, greater than the other. But another rule um so the second rule um for evidence is is to know that direct evidence and indirect evidence are of equal value one is not greater than the other neither is entitled to any greater weight than the other now that's very important to know because when it comes to for example the scripture and and you know the bible and and the reliability of the scripture you know, you think of the, the, the gospel accounts, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Matthew and John were Jesus' disciples. Mark, was a, Mark wrote his book, his account, and he was writing from the words of Peter. So whatever Peter was telling him, Mark was writing it down as a scribe. And Luke... Well, Luke wasn't, an eye, Luke wasn't an eyewitness, but he had close association with eyewitnesses. He was investigating this and, and making a, a historical account. And so we have all, all these four gospel accounts were either written by an eyewitness or they had close connection to an eyewitness. Now, the thing is, from, from all those four gospel accounts, all those four, um, four slash five guys, all of them are dead today. We have we don't have any access to them. We can't ask, you know, John, you know, what did Jesus mean when he said this? Or we can't ask Matthew, hey, so when you started following Jesus, what did it, you know, was it more of a bias? Did you have, a, you know, did you already expect the Messiah coming? No, we can't ask some questions like that because they're not with us. So when when it comes to, you know, these eyewitness accounts, when it comes to, you know, wanting to know if these are reliable and true. We have to build the case indirectly with the little pieces of information, uh, information, excuse me, gathering the convincing indirect evidence and building the case from there. And the, and, and the good thing about this is that indirect evidence is as equal, is, 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 um, has the same amount of value. It's equally valued um, with direct evidence. None, one is not greater than the other. And so that's that's a good thing to know because if we were to build the case, which I think that there's 
good evidence and, and, and you can build the case and take an evidential approach towards Christianity, the fact that you're building the case indirectly with these um, pieces of information, this convincing and compelling um, information, that doesn't, this doesn't make it um, of, of lesser value because we don't have access to the eyewitnesses. No, we, we see that these guys lived and, and, and you know, they wrote about this and and I think that there's good reasons to believe that. And so when it comes to that, I think that's that's an important thing to 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 know in that indirect evidence and direct evidence are are of equal value. And so I think that's very important to, to remember and to know. Um, another rule of evidence, rule number three, is that there's a difference between possible and reasonable. Now, I, I know I touched on this a uh, little bit on, you know, the introduction video, you know, and that's the name of the, pos- the podcast, you know, possible or reasonable. But there's a difference between these two terms. There's a difference between possible and reasonable. You know, the standard of proof, you know, the standard that's used in a courtroom to arrive to the, um, to arrive to the truth, you know, of a matter is beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, and, and, you know, and I always, I like to use these courtroom analogies because, you know, I love watching, you know, like the Sherlock Holmes series. I love watching the, you know, the forensic files and I love seeing how these detectives and how these, um, different, you know, um, people from different backgrounds are able to come and, you know, make a case and, and build a case, you know, solely using sometimes indirect pieces of evidence and, but it's so convincing and it's so compelling. And at the end of the day, they're able to solve the mystery and it's so awesome. But the standard that they're using is not beyond a possible doubt. The standard that they're using is beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and that's very, that's very um, important to remember because when you think about it, we use that standard every day in our lives. You know, if I, you know, if I was to live uh, my life using the standard beyond a possible doubt, well, man, I would be living in worry and, 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 and in anxiety and, in, and uncertainty because if I lived with that standard, you know, I wouldn't want to go to work anymore because if I, you know, it's possible that, you know, when I turn on my car, it might explode, right? When I turn on the ignition, my car might explode. It's possible. It's at least possible. You can't throw that out the window. Or, you know, I, if, if I live with that standard, it's possible that the next time I go to a restaurant, it's possible that I can... Um, get food poisoning, right? It's at least possible. But we don't think about these things. That's not how we function on our day-to-day, or in our day-to-day lives. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't go to a restaurant and, and, you know, tell the cashier saying, hey, you know, um, I, I really want to eat here, but, you know, I don't know if I can eat the food that's being served unless you show me, like, the certificates and the papers of your chef. I want to see if this person is able to cook and how, how, um, you know, if they have their certain, um, you know, uh, papers that allow them, you know, to be a chef here. And also I want to, uh, if you don't mind, can you actually record them, um, while they're cooking so I can see that they don't put anything, um, uh, that they don't mess with the food and, you know, that, that I know for, for a fact that everything's okay. You know, I don't, we don't, we don't, um, live with that mindset. You know, we don't think about those things. We just, you know, we have that trust that, you know, the meal that I'm going to eat is going to be a meal that's going to 
nourish my body or probably not, you know, in a sense, nourish it if I'm eating like, you know, jack in the box every day. But, you know, you know what I mean? But basically, we don't have that sense of fear installed in our in our minds because we don't live with that standard. We don't live beyond the possible doubt. The standard that you and I use is beyond a reasonable doubt. And so when it comes to looking at evidence, when it comes to analyzing and and trying to interpret what the evidence is telling us, we want to draw the most reasonable conclusion from the edit, from the evidence, from the data points. And there's a difference. There's a difference between facts, aka evidence, and conclusions. Facts are the things that are that are you know that are evidence and that are that and that can be proven and they don't change. Conclusions are the things that that come from your facts. And so really that's an important thing to know because sometimes we might think, well, hey, if something's a fact, no one would want to deny it, right? I mean, who if something's objectively true, then I mean, then no one's going to deny it. The thing is, we sometimes um forget the difference between facts and conclusions. And sometimes we tend to say that conclusions are facts when in reality they're just conclusions. And so we want to make sure that we clarify on what these terms mean and what and how we come to these um to the meaning of these terms and how we can come um you know using this um these rules and and looking at evidence that we we want to our aim is to come to the most reasonable conclusion from the facts from the evidence. And so just know that the evidence, whenever you're looking at evidence, whenever you're um, taking a look at evidence and analyzing it, the evidence does not need to eliminate all possible doubt because everything in life is open to some possible or some imaginary doubt, right? Like I shared, it's possible that I might, when I turn on my car, it might explode. It's possible that I, when I go to eat some food, it's possible that there might be, it might result in food poisoning. It's, it's, all these things are at least possible. But are they reasonable? Are they reasonable? That's just something that I wanted to share with you guys because so many times this can be um, translated to Christianity. For example, you know, Jesus, you know, the Christianity is grounded in an event, a historic event that occurred in history called the resurrection, right? And I think there's good reasons to believe that's true on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Right? And I think there's lots of good reasons to demonstrate that Christianity is true. But Christianity is grounded on that historic event, the resurrection. And if the resurrection didn't happen, well, Paul tells us, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we're above all people to be pitied, us as Christians. right? And so I think we're blessed as Christians. I think we're blessed as Christians that we don't believe in something that's not rooted in history. We believe in something that had to actually occur. And so, you know, there are those who will say, you know, well, you know, I don't think we don't, you know, Jesus probably didn't even die on the cross. Or, you know, he, he probably just passed out. You know, these, the, the Romans, they, you know, they weren't, you know, doctors. So they probably thought he was dead and, you know, they didn't check his pulse technically. So he might have just, you know, gone into a deep sleep. But in reality, he was still alive. Or there are those who will say, well, it's. It's, you know, it's, it's possible that he'd even, um, that he didn't rise from the dead because his body was stolen. Either his disciples stole it 
his body or whatever it is, right? The stolen body um, theory. Or there were those who say, well, the disciples probably hallucinated and they they said they saw Jesus because they really wanted to see him. And so they, they it was just a big hallucination, right? There's a lot of these theories that are being tossed out and, and people are tossing out these possibilities, but without any concrete evidence to suggest that any of these possibilities are reasonable, right? For example, you know, in the Gospel of John, it says that one there is a when Jesus was on the cross, that the Roman soldier came and and he pierced a spear through Jesus's side. He pierced a spear through Jesus's side. And you know, and for those who say, you know, well, we don't know if Jesus died on the cross. He might have passed out, right? They didn't check his pulse. Well, I mean, yes, I know. Yeah, they didn't check his pulse, but the, I mean. Stab, putting a spear through someone's side is probably another good way to check if they're dead or, you know, or not, right? And so this Roman soldier pierced the spear through Jesus' side, and not only did blood come out, but water came out. Now that's interesting because we know that today, that's actually a description of, of pericardial effusion, which is a result of death by asphyxiation, basically to die from lack of oxygen. Now, people... Who, who, who die from heart failure, they often experience pericardial effusion, which is increased fluid in the membrane surrounding the lungs. And so I think that the evidence in, from that text and the evidence um, f- that shows in history, I think that the evidence points to the fact, to, I mean, the, the evidence points most reasonably um, to the conclusion that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. That Jesus was was pronounced dead even before that spear was um, driven through his side, and so it's possible that he passed that he passed out. It's possible that he didn't die on the cross, but it's not reasonable because the evidence suggests that he did die on the cross. Also, when it comes to the different, you know, um, the hallucination theory, right? You know, oh, they really wanted to see him, and so they they must have halluc- they, they must have hallucinated, right? But when you think about it, you have these repeated persistence. You have these repeated persistent accounts of more than one person seeing Jesus at the same time, right? You have five hundred people who claim to see who claim to see Jesus at the same time, and it's been said that that's that would be a bigger miracle for five hundred people to to witness the the risen Jesus to risen to witness the risen Savior. That would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. And so it's possible that they hallucinated this, but it's not reasonable, right? When you have more than one person repeating um, a, a story or repeating of what they uh, repeating something um, that they saw, that's not called a hallucinate. That's not called a hallucination. In reality, that's called a memory <laughs> because we were together when we saw it, you know. Um, and so it's possible that they hallucinated, but it's not reasonable. And so I think it's it's important that we know and we clarify that there's a difference between possible and reasonable. And the standard that we that we're using, the standard that we use in, in courtroom trials is beyond a reasonable doubt. And this standard that we use, we don't just use it, you know, to see if this person is, um, you know, oh, you know, guilty or innocent or, you know, that they committed the crime or not. And they should go to prison for like a year and 10 years. No, we use that same standard. Even also to, you know, to execute, for, for people to be, you know, um, 
executed or to go um, to prison for life. And so these are serious prices that people have to pay. And yet we're still using that same standard. It's not that we're changing standards. No, the same standard is being applied. The standard beyond a reasonable doubt. I think there's there's more than enough evidence, you know, to believe that God exists. There's more than enough, there's more than enough evidence to believe that Jesus exists, and, and and for the reliability of the Scripture. The thing is, you've got to decide if you're willing to see it, or if you're even beginning to look for it. And I hope that you are. And if you do, just know we want to be open to following the evidence, be open to following truth wherever it leads. There's a difference between possible and reasonable. Anything and everything is possible, but not anything and everything is reasonable. And our aim, our goal, is to draw the most reasonable conclusion from the evidence. I hope that this, um, that this helped you guys in seeing that, hey, you know, this standard beyond a reasonable doubt, if I was to use this and, and apply it to the Christian faith, what does this tell me? about the Bible. What does this, does this tell me that the Bible is true? Can I, can it be trusted? Can it, you know, um, what does this tell me about, you know, because if, if I see that the Bible is reliable and it's telling me the truth of what really happened 2000 years ago, then, then, okay, I want to see what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And as I start to read it, okay, now what does the Bible have to say about me? Because if, if, if this book is true, if the Bible is true, and all these things that it, you know, that it tells me about me are true, then I, then, the, then I go from curiosity, like wondering, is this true? To, to urgency, like I need to respond because, um, you know, I think like C.S. Lewis said it, if Christianity is false, it's, it's of zero importance, you know, don't even think twice about it if it's false, you know, don't even, if it's false, don't even, you know, don't, don't fret about it, don't, don't worry about it. But if it's true, then there's nothing more important in the entire universe. Anything and everything is possible, but not anything and everything is reasonable. Thank you so much, you guys, for joining us, um, for joining me, I'm sorry, <laughs> for joining me today on Possible or Reasonable. Um, I'll see you guys next week. Until then, have a great week.